You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 72. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find shadows, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. A quick question for all you trailblazing freelancers. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? Our friends at FreshBooks, who make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers, are the architects behind this question, and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. If that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been built from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and have added powerful new features. Oh, and if you're doing the math, 192 hours works out to two working days per month. When tax time does roll around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. If you're a freelancer listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now would be the time to try. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section. All right. First up, a little bit of news here. We're starting with the reviews. Alan, you want to tell us about the uh, iTunes reviews? Yep. So we've got Dev Material, BT and Ds, and you know who you are, Brome, CS Olson. And we've got some Mandarin here. That was that was fun. It actually translates to Paul Bear. I plugged that in to translate. That was good. The real Mr. Nice, B. Efferman, and Jaramillo Developer. And on Stitcher, we have Giorgio33, Jenna Tulls, Blue Wilson, Daniel Holter, and Jimmy Cliff. All right. And on Podchaser, we got RM Quist. Thank you very much. Yes, very much indeed. And so I wanted to give a, a quick shout out here. So being that we're all into programming and we like puzzles and, and things like that, like that's what we do is we solve puzzles. I've really, my wife and I have gotten into where we really like doing escape rooms. And if you're ever up in the Kennesaw area, there is a really good one. And, and this guy, he's trying to live the dream, right? Like he's he's done his own business here and created this escape room and it's called Mindscape Rooms. And I highly recommend it. Like all kinds of cool little electric gadgets. Like you do something over here and it unlocks something over here. Like it's just really fun. They did an an excellent job. So if you're in the Kennesaw area, definitely go check them out. It, it was a ton of fun. Did you escape? Of course we did, man. Come on. How many hints did you get? <laughs> uh, we use our hints. <laughs> That's yeah. no doubt. But but that was it. But we did get out. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, those, are, those can be really hard. Some of them are, are incredibly difficult, but it's perfect for puzzle solvers, right? Like it, it makes your brain work in a different way, which is awesome. So uh, just a heads up for anyone who's not already taken advantage of this, Pluralsight is giving away th- uh, for free three months with a Microsoft Dev Essentials account. So not entirely sure if this is still valid, but we're going to include the link in the show notes and hopefully it'll still be a thing. This was uh, sent to us by our friend Viv, who's uh, the co-organizer for SwanseeCon. Yep. 
And, and Dev Essentials comes with a whole slew of its own stuff, like you know, cloud access, developer tools, all that. So you get a bunch of other stuff with it. But having three months is a pretty good way to start your new year out. Yeah. Yeah, it's Microsoft Visual Studio Dev Essentials. So it, you know, you probably have an account anyway. And yeah. uh, it's really nice. It's really free. And three months of Pearl size is pretty amazing. You yeah, can man. watch, you know, like 10% of the videos in that time if you really tried. Yeah. <laughs> 10%. <laughs> they have a ton now. Yeah, they do. All right. And speaking of Pearl site, if you decide that you want to sign up for it, if you and you also want to support the show, you can go to codingblocks.net slash resources. And we've got a bunch of affiliate links and just other things that we kind of like there that we get a lot of questions about. And if you go to that page, click on some stuff, you'll be helping support the show and uh, also be getting, you know, cool stuff that you want anyway. So check it out. That's codingblocks.net slash resources. All right. Well, this is it. This is the episode you've been waiting for. We're talking about component coupling where Uncle Bob is going to introduce three new principles to us to help us define stability and abstraction and show us how we can mathematically graph the quality of our code and finally explain to us how independ works. <laughs> True that. I, I I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed this particular chapter. Yes. I, I think I think you guys will hear it as we get into it, but this one this one had a ton of meat in the meat and potato department. So here we go. The first one we're going to kick off with is in the component coupling is acyclic dependencies principle. And the first thing that they say here is allow no cycles in the component dependency graph. And to uh, so, several of you listening, I, I'd venture to say a lot of you listening, you're going to be like, what does that even mean? The whole a cycle in your dependency graph basically means it can't come back to itself, right? Like there's no point where you can follow the arrows of one thing pointing to another and it circle back to you. So that is a circular dependency is what you also call it when, right. when you're talking in programming terms. So that's what they're referring to when they say no cycles Bas in the dependency graph. Yeah, basically draw all your components and with arrows of which components um, depend on some another component and keep drawing that one. And if you have any path that can circle back on itself, then you have a cycle. Yep. Uh, yeah. It, and back on itself isn't necessarily meaning just pointing to itself. It could be just further up two levels in the chain, right? And then come back yeah, down. Yeah, if you can eventually get back yes. to it. Yep. Now I gotta ask a question. How's this even possible? How can you have a how can you have a cyclic de uh, circular dependency and it compile? Uh, we've definitely seen it. Haven't Where we? it compiles? I think so. I know a C sharp will uh, kind of yell at you about stuff like this. I was just kind of wondering the same thing. Um, you know, I saw the graphs in the chapter and like, you know, kind of like made sense, but now that I actually think about trying to compile, like, I don't know how I could reproduce this unless we're talking about total disparate, you know, systems. Well, the one thing that I was thinking about, it was like interpreted languages. Those were the only kind of environments where I was thinking like, well, okay, well maybe because you're not like pre-compiling, you're not like, you know, um, doing things like includes or imports, you know, you're just figuring it out at runtime, what's necessary. And I was like, okay, maybe in something like that, but in any kind of compiled C, C++, C Sharp, Java, I was a little confused as to how you could get into that scenario. But yeah, we can go on. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of how you could do it. It seems like I've seen it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am thinking of like JavaScript or Ruby or something like that, but... Um, 
Yeah. Anyways, the uh, what they call here is the morning after syndrome, which is interesting. It's kind of funny. They they talk about when you work late one night and you're you're busting your tail, you get something working, and you know it was perfect that night. You know you left at midnight, all is well. You come in the next morning, first thing you you pull in your latest code, and it's not working anymore. Right. <sighs> It's happened. Everybody who's worked on any kind of teams, this has happened to them at some point. That uh, that is the most surefire way to ruin your day, right it there. Is. Because you go home, you stayed late that night, anyways, working, and and whether it was because you had to or you wanted to or whatever the reason was, you by the time you left, you're like, yes, it's working. I did it. It's done. And then you come back in the morning and you're like, yeah, you got this big smile on your face, ear to ear. And then you pull the latest code down and then it doesn't compile. You're like, what? What just happened? Yep. And uh, a surefire way to get this to happen is to have a long running branch. Like go, you know, spend a week, two weeks working on some big feature and then you go to merge it in and oh, the ground has changed underneath you. Everything is different. So now you can't merge it in. So now you spend another day, you know, getting up to date. Oh, but now they don't want to merge it in because you know, some other stuff's going along. There's going to be some sort of release. It's, you know, it's considered risky now that you've had a couple of conflicts. So let's push it off another day. And next thing you know, you're looking at week three and it just gets harder and scarier and more difficult as each day passes. I, I found this very interesting <gasps> that he said that this can happen when too many developers are working in the same files or project. Yep. It was almost like not only is the book talking about how to structure and organize and architect your code. But in a statement like that, he's also talking about your teams and the organization of your, your, your development, you know, the developers within your company, how they should work. Yeah. And they also say this makes it extremely difficult to get a build out, which is what Joe just referenced, right? Like, you know, (laughs) here it is, it's Friday, you're supposed to be getting something out. And all the stuff that was working Thursday night is now back into a state of, you know, probably disarray, and maybe not even testable at that point, if that's the case, right? So yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things. And and they say there's two, there's two types of solutions that have evolved. And we're going to talk about the first one now. Yeah. And this was curious, too, because he says that both of them evolved from the telecommunications industry. And I didn't have a chance to go back and like dig into where that was, but I, I did find that super curious. I want to go back um, and, and try to remember to look that up. But if anyone uh, is familiar with where this came, its origins within the telecommunications industry, I'd like to know. And the first of that was the weekly build. I bet nobody's heard this one before. <laughs> yeah. So basically the idea here is that, um, you know, because the build was such a hassle and merging in everybody's code and whatnot, it was just, it was so burdensome, uh, that, you know, that became such a burden that it would take an entire day. So the idea was, well, we'll let, we'll let all the developers work for four days and give them four solid days, uninterrupted time. They can just do their own thing in their own code uh, code base, their own repository, whatever, you know, locally do their development. And then we'll worry about integrating in with everybody else, with everybody else's, uh, components and code and whatnot, uh, at, at the end of the week. So we'll do that on Friday. We'll save it for one day out of the week and we'll figure out the problems then. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, um, I haven't seen it weekly, but I've seen it in kind of like larger projects where you've got um, multiple teams. And so you say like, say the installer team is kind of off doing their own thing for, 
uh, a sprint or some sort of cycle and the UI team is doing their own thing and they're kind of like either mocking out those dependencies or just kind of ignoring or whatever. And then you've got some sort of, you know, some other team that's doing something separate. And then at some point you kind of try to bring them all together and do some sort of, you know, a big test. And it's always terrible. And it's like weeks of terrible, uh, like a large percentage of the time you spend developing terrible. Yeah. And it doesn't get better. Like they, they say here, the, the problem is, is that Friday build starts trickling into Saturday, right? Like, oh, we got to get this build out. So, so then people end up, you know, they probably stay all day Friday till seven, eight o'clock at night. And then they're back in Saturday morning and try and wrap the thing up. And then eventually that breaks down. Right. And then, and then it starts taking all day Saturday and starts creeping into Sunday. And then people will say, well, it starts backing up because, you know, mm-hmm. you're willing to accept that one Saturday. Right. Right. You're like, oh, fine, whatever. It's just, it's once in a blue moon. Right. And then there's that second and that third Saturday. And you're like, whoa, hold on. I'm seeing a pattern here. No, right. We got to start this process on Thursday. So now all you developers, you get three solid days and we're going to take two days to do the build. And so, so yeah, or you like expanded out, like I kind of talked about, where it was like, okay, now we do the first three weeks is development and one week is integration, or two weeks development, two weeks integration, or you can kind of set that dial a little bit more granular. But both are, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous because then your productivity takes a major hit, right? Yep. Like you're not developing, you're not creating stuff. Now you're just dealing with, with garbage that has to all flow together at the end. Yeah. yeah I and was- the bigger it gets, the worse it gets. Yeah, and I was curious though too, and and maybe this is where the telecommunications part came from. But like, I've never worked in an environment where we only did a build once a week. Mm-hmm. Have you guys? I mean, I know Joe. You already said you haven't, Alan. No, I would. I mean, um, so not necessarily a build, but kind of um, those uh, like milestone kind of releases, like where everyone the teams go work for three weeks or four weeks and put the stuff together, then kind of kick over a version to QA. Um, I've uh, definitely worked in that environment with like lo- kind of. That's what I meant. Um, it, but we did have nightly builds in that place, and that was just more to kind of keep your stuff kind of fresh and integrate with those changes. But like we never really tested things all together until these bigger milestones. That's because so much stuff was changing, and it was too hard to try and adapt to those changes. And things that you were even testing and working on sometimes, like in my case, it was like backup and restores. So they could even take hours to test, you know, for real. So most of our work was done, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to make shorter feedback cycles so we can kind of do our testing and mocking. Um, so maybe we and should then you throw it all together and give it to QA, you know, once a month or whatever. And then they, you know, shoot holes, <laughs> shoot holes in you. So maybe we should, maybe we should rephrase this. Then maybe, maybe he's not necessarily referring to the weekly build as in like, Hey, let's compile this thing. Maybe he's really meaning like the weekly delivery. I think it could be both, right? It, yeah. it could definitely, yeah. I mean, because it could be that your code didn't integrate well with my code or whatever, but then it could also be, <laughs> does this thing work? Right. So I, I think it's, I think both are legitimate problems that occur with this. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's, he says that this is eventually going to lead into a crisis though, because um, going back to the, the schedule, the build schedule lengthening over time, um, you know, where if it, creeps from Friday back to Thursday or, you know, as Joe said, from, you know, an entire week to, you know, two entire weeks to do that, um, you know, you're going to get into a crisis. Yeah. You know, my example, we were definitely building every night and uh, that was a pain in the butt, but uh, at least it didn't, it did mean that we didn't have to have some big integration day where we just kind of, you know, fixed all the build server. So I think, 
Uh, yeah, I can't really think of a, a good example where someone would be working in their own silo for a week or two weeks and then trying to all merge on the same day. That seems pretty crazy to me, but maybe that's old school or maybe that's just a type of product that I've never worked on. Yeah, I'm definitely way more familiar with Nightly's, uh, you know, being the norm. Yeah, you ever do something like you check something in at like 5 p.m. and it like works great and somebody manages to get something else in or somebody checks something in at like 4.59 that breaks you and you didn't even know it. And, you know, I see the build server when it finally gets to it like 11 o'clock at night and, uh, you know, pulls that and on cord and stops the train and you're in trouble. Yep. So then that brings us into the second one, which is removing dependency cycles. Uh, and so our, our first approach was basically just um, having a kind of a, a weekly build that brought everything together. Now, the removing the dependency cycles is kind of taking a different approach. It's saying, hey, let's not have dependencies on uh, on uh, each other's code. And so the developers will work on independent releasable components. And did we talk about what components were? Did we define the components? I, that's kind of loose. I mean, you want to give it a stab? Yeah, I think we talked about it last time. I just couldn't remember we brought it up last night. But it's basically the smallest releasable <laughs> component. So there you go, recursive <laughs> dis- definition. Let's call it the um, unit of work. Smallest releasable yeah. unit of work. There we or go. Or deliverable. All right. Yeah, so uh, we have, like, I, I don't want to say microservices because that's an example of having smaller releasable components. But the idea of just breaking something into small releasable chunks so that, you know, say Outlaw can work on the server, Alan owns the database, I've got the UI. And then um, the, each one of those is independently releasable and can actually, you know, potentially work with um, older versions of its dependencies in order to kind of keep things moving and working. Well, heck, if, even if we took it into the level of, let's say, JavaScript, like NPM, that would be a component, right? Um, or could be a, a very small component. It could be a massive component. Well, you could have multiple components could, that are delivered by NPM. Same thing with NuGet and C Sharp and Java. You could have jars and various different things. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it could be anything that you're going to release out to another group to use. Okay. Yeah. And- what this allows for, though, is it allows you to have more integrations more often, but they're smaller, and because of that, they're uh, more manageable. So yeah, and also, uh, well, I was going to say, like, uh, I think like one of the examples we talked about last time for components was um, one of you guys wrote some amazing logging component. I think it might have been Alan. So like, you know, Alan releases his new, uh, the latest version of his logging component. And now I want to use it and maybe there's some change to it uh, or maybe there's just a new feature that I want to use. So when I bring in that latest version, yeah, I don't have to bring it in until I'm ready to do that integration and take advantage of that feature or make whatever the necessary change is for it. So it allows you to, to schedule uh, those a little bit easier. Yeah, and this gets back into what we talked about in the last episode with the semantic versioning. So when you complete these components, you actually version them so that other teams know you're communicating to them, hey, this one is backwards compatible. You know, we talked about the second digit being, you know, um, additional features being added or whatever, the third digit being bug fixes, that kind of thing. So 
you can actually communicate through your release number of whatever component you're creating so that these teams know whether or not, hey, we need to pull this in because it's fixing a bug or I'm getting new features or whatever. And that was the reuse slash release equivalence program, sorry, principle or the REP. Episode 71. Yep. And and here's the thing, right? The whole purpose of this thing is, is when teams are depending on just components that are being released from other teams, then you don't have this whole need to do this weekly build to throw things together because they're all independently being tested, you know. And well, you hope. It should be, right? <laughs> Otherwise, everybody's going to uh, get a pretty bad setup. But But that's the whole goal is these things are being created – I hate to say it this way, but sort of in a silo, so they're 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 more hardened, and so when they get released out to the other teams, then they just get plugged in, right? It's just a piece that gets added to it. Okay, so how about this? Um, let's pretend I have a, a big project, and it's only one project; it's only one component, so it's one big releasable, you know, monolithic uh, application, and I still have a lot of different people on it. So now people might be working on, say, different namespaces or different files, and then it's really easy to have cross-dependencies and not even realize that namespace A depends on namespace B and namespace B depends on namespace A because that's not a compiler problem. That will compile just fine, I think. Um, but Well, we should try that. But uh, it's much easier to make those kind of mistakes, and so I think this is also kind of a, a good argument for kind of having those nicely kind of cleanly defined components, which we talked about last episode as well. Yeah. I mean, problems like this are, are interesting. Uh, I've talked about it with several people that I work with, including Mike is like, you know, what you were talking about is you have one huge project that has a ton of things in it. Right. And like you said, those things all sort of work together and, and we'll get further into this a little bit later in this chapter here. But I think the answer is, is you start pulling those things out, right? The things that, that should work independently, that shouldn't have, that shouldn't be a part of this whole dependency thing, right? Like we've even talked about in the past, right? Don't make an object uh, rely on an, on an interface that has so much that it doesn't need, right? It should be the bare minimum of what it needs. So you start pulling those things out into their own components and so that they can be broken out. And now you have these things that are sitting by themselves, right? That, that you could potentially version and do all those things too. I think that's probably the way to go with things like this. Yeah. And last time we talked about the common closure principle and the common reuse principle as ways to kind of know like just when to break things up. And so it's not too small and annoying and it's not too, uh, too big and annoying. But if I just wish there was a way that we could like, I don't know, statically look at our project and maybe do a little math and come up with a number that tells us whether we've got too much stuff that's uh, too interrelated or too big, too concrete or too abstract. Hmm. If only there was a way. If only. <laughs> hey, Stay by tuned. the way, you mentioned uh, the project, uh, the namespace depending on namespace, depending on, you know, namespace A depending on namespace B depending on namespace A, right? But if they're all in the same project, the namespaces are just an organization tool. So it shouldn't be a complicated Yeah, that's my problem. understanding. So I wasn't sure if that was extra problem or not. I know NDepend will yell at me when I do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess there's the answer. Like you can do that and you shouldn't do that. And static analysis will catch it for you. Because it's basically a folder, more or less, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be in, in C-sharp. You know, you can kind of name those things whatever you want. 
Yep. Yeah. But even Visual Studio yell at you about that, I believe. Resharper well. Yeah. So if only there was a way, right? And, and this is where we we talk about this whole we need to remove the cycles. And so the graph that we were talking about where you have arrows pointing for your dependencies, your top level dependency pointing to your next level <laughs> dependency, that's called a directed acyclic graph. And the whole goal is with those arrows pointing down from one thing, depending on the other to another, that should never circle back up to any level up above it. that could come back to it somehow. Right. And that's what they talk about. You need to make sure there are no cycles. So that's what you're doing when you're removing these cycles. Yeah, I will say, though, that every time I kept looking at that, I kept reading it wrong and be like, oh, well, this depends on that. Oh, wait, I got the arrow wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time with those arrows. It's really kind of silly. Um, I do like uh, how independent graphs, I'm going to talk about independent a lot because it's like the only static analysis tool I've got experience with. But uh, it's kind of silly, but it actually, um, the way it kind of draws the thickness and draws the arrows, it kind of makes them a little curvy. There's something about that curve that kind of like makes me understand it a little bit better. You know, about the straight lines and seeing them, it just like it, it makes it hard to tell which direction it's moving. You know, I think there was another one that was mentioned previously. Was sonar it Sonar Cube? cube? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's another one of the static analysis uh, tools out there that that people use quite a bit. Um. Anyways, so it, one of the questions we have is: this advocating for breaking the teams by source code or by feature? Yeah, this is going back to that that other point about where it's like not only how do you organize your your application, your software, how do you organize your developers? This one's so hard. I mean, I, I think it depends on projects and, and I get frustrated by this one because I don't really know a right answer. So let's take, for instance, let's say a website, right? A website, a lot of times you don't, the UI is like this one thing, Right. And while it may all somewhat tie together, it's not like you were in most cases and, and, and not most cases I've seen. It's not like you bundle up pieces of your website, right? Like you don't have this page has these components over here and then you, you version that page or you version those pieces on that page. And then you have this page over here that has other ones and you version those pieces on the page. And then you've got things like routing, right? That is cross cutting across the entire app. And this is where I get, I I have a hard time, like for whatever reason, when I'm thinking about middle tier code, like server side or even database code, it's easy for me to compartmentalize those things. But when it comes to UI pieces, this is where I struggle with how that happens. And what's the answer? Do you break it apart to where you have multiple teams that are just, they work on one page? I don't know about It seems page. like the book kind of assumes that you're broken up almost by component. So that people working component A don't know about what's going on in component B. And, and like that's kind of a point of the abstraction there. So I kind of feel like there's uh, some bias for that there. But what about like a and website it, with like routing though? Well, like, another way to say that component would be feature, right? So going back to, you know, you you could break it up by feature. You so know, the, if, you, if a component is a feature. Logging is a feature. If going back to the logging as the example, right, right? and that one's easy for me, right? Like I said, it, when it comes to UI pieces, this is where I get really frustrated when trying to figure out how to split those things properly because you have things. Well, even in your web example, though, you could have components within that web example, and each 
each of those web components would be responsible for their own routing. Going back to your routing question, right? But you have these pages that hold these components, right? So you have a page and it has five components on the page. So those those components are completely independent of the routes, at least at least from from a high level view of that page. You know what I'm saying? And that's that's where it's hard because routing's like its own beast. Like that's a page by page thing. You can pull in as many components as you want. If you wanted 20 components on that page, you could bring them in. And all those components have state that that is typically pulled in by whatever the URL is. And so now how do you break that thing up? Does somebody own routing for the entire website? And that's the component. But that component has to be aware of all the other components on the page because it's what yeah, hydrates those things. I don't things. think you could do that. I don't think that would be. And, and that's that's the part where like talking about certain parts of applications, this stuff really makes sense to me. But other parts of it like that, where there's things that literally are so intertwined with the other pieces that really drive me crazy. Like because well, if they're intertwined, then they should be deployed together, right? And you know, ideally, is in the common closure principle. Or according, you know, if we are in a perfect world, then things that change together would stay together. So if the routing is entwined with the website, then the website would be its own component. So we're saying the website it's just one component. You don't break if it up it's into entwined. Pieces. So either you need to figure out how to break it apart with some sort of like modular interface, you know, somehow and have those be separately releasable components, or you just, you know, have it be one big fat component. That's such a hard You can still have modules, you know, you have just like you have namespaces in a, a DLL or something. It just, you know, if that stuff is really so entwined that every time you're changing a route, you're changing the uh, website too, then why separate them? Hmm. Interesting. I, mean, I was trying to think of an example like, um, you know, we've talked about Alassian before. So, you know, like Jira would be one component. Confluence would be another component. Yep. Right. But, but even those are like, like whole the, apps though, right? Like, and that's, that's where I yeah, feel like components say, stretching like, it. Like that's not a component, like a okay, component. What about be, this one? What about this one? What about uh, Office 365 on the web? Mm-hmm. Right. And within Office 365, there's Outlook, there's Word, and there's Excel. Those could be different dev teams. Those are apps, though. I'd say even but, within those teams, right? There's going to be, but components. there's still the container around that. Right. There's the Office 365 container around it. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think this is where it's hard to draw the line between a component and a full featured app, right? Because that's where. I wouldn't be surprised, like, for instance, Office 365 is a, a great example, or even Atlassian. They're going to have a logon component that all of them use, right? Like, all of these things are going to have some sort of token that says, I have access to products A, B, C, and D. So, that is a component. That that whole um, authorization, authentication piece is a component that they all share. And then there might even be additional things like a perfect example now is cloud storage, right? If you want to save an Excel file online, you can say, Hey, save it to my OneDrive or save it to whatever. And that's a component that they all share. But then when you start looking at something like Excel, there's tons of different components within it or even word. And that's where I'm like, how do you break that apart? I mean, even if we were to like talk about another app, like even if we were to break this out into another application, like a Spotify, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, there might be one component that's just the ads that are going to be served, right? Mm -hmm. And and deciding what ads to to show you, there might be another component that would be search, Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right? But those aren't components, right? Because those are unless they're um, unless they're an actual separate like service. Like you would deploy the search service or the ad service, and all of that is kind of transparent to you know the user because they're just going through their app, which I would consider that another component. So the whole app, I would say, is one component. Well, I was thinking of the app as you know. Um, comprising of multiple components within it. A container so, of components. So that, yeah, it's a container of components. But the you app- can't deploy a sub, you can't deploy one of those individually. You you deploy an app version. The app you version just say, could be deployed. The app version is, a, is an aggregate of some selection of components, but what version of those components you decided to include in that version, you could change. Now, once you've made that installer and it's out there, you know, you're done until, but even in a, uh, you know, an update capability where, you know, your application can update itself, you might update selective components. Well, so, I like, yeah, I like the Spotify example because there, I think there are a ton of features in Spotify that you can absolutely identify a separate component. Search would be one that, that could totally be a service. Totally. But you, but you can't deploy just the search. It, it could be like its own DLL. Why, why can't it it's be its, its own, own DLL, but you still, the, I would say its own component. The, the actual, so the DLL maybe is its own component, but when you're talking about the app, I would say the whole app is a component. No, no. And that's, I think where, where we've got to sort of draw this line or, or differentiate what an app and a component is. So what you're talking about is you can't deploy that UI without the search in it, right? That's what you're talking about. That's an application. That's a compilation of all the UI pieces that tie all those components together, right? So that search box that's in that UI is using a search component that has probably been built that allows them to be able to search whatever their databases are. I'll give you another one, like the share, like play on my device or play on, play on my receiver or play on my iPad or play on whatever. That's probably another component that they've built that works on their mobile app, on their web player, on on whatever else is there. And and so I think those are the components. You're talking about the entire application. You're correct. That that app can't be deployed without those components, but I wouldn't call the application a component. I don't think because it's not used as a component. It's an end user. It's an aggregate. Yeah. Which is yeah. so, so now circling back to your web example, that web app is an aggregate. It is. And that's, that's what's hard. Like, how do you, so like I said, I can see how you can break down components, like functional pieces. I get when you start talking about UI pieces and how all those things tie together. And and I'm not as familiar with windows programming or, or um, desktop type programming applications, but I'm sure the same type problems exist there, right? Where you have to share state between various different places that's where it feels like it's a lot harder to break things out so that the problem that we mentioned earlier where you don't have too many people working on code that's going to step on each other's toes that's the part that frustrates me because i can't figure out or i haven't at least thought of a good way to where you can split that up and and say okay you own this piece over here and somehow it's just going to work with this piece over here you know honestly i mean you mentioned um managing state and i don't know why in reading this chapter but for some reason i had this thought that came up which was that um you know managing state it's got to be like the hardest thing that we do in our job second to deciding what to name something like that's yeah, that's, that's up there that, that's way number one and then managing the state is like it's a distant second but it is second yeah 
Yeah, state's difficult. I'd say caching also. I mean, we've talked about it. Like the, all those type things where you're having to either rehydrate a portion of an application or, or you know, save that portion of the application so that it can be brought up. Like, like that stuff is so freaking hard. Well, caching is a form of state management, it though, is. right? So, it is. Yeah. Just a speedier one. So. Yeah. Anyways, I, I mean, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go on that too long, but it is one of those things to where some of this stuff isn't just cut and dry, right? Like what we're talking about right now, it's easy to compartmentalize some of this stuff, and other pieces of it are just really hard. They're really hard to break down in any kind of, um, not meaningful way, but in a way to where you're actually making teams to where they can work efficiently together. So coming back then to the dependency cycles. We know that that having these cycles make the code, well, for one, we're not sure how we could actually have these and the code compile, right. but assuming that we do and we're working in a compiled language, then it would make it, uh, the release is difficult and fragile and, you know, likely lead to the morning after syndrome. So how do we break the cycle? Yeah, um, one way is a de dependency inversion principle. So basically using strong interfaces for the different components and kind of having those uh, contracts or act as a buffer between the components. So you're not um, depending on component A from component B. Now you're, on, you're depending on interface A, which component A just happens to implement. Uh, and so you've got a little bit of buffer there. Yeah, I really like this because in in one of them they talk about, you know, you've got this this strong dependency from A to B like you said, right? And how do you break that? So the interface that he was talking about is you might create a project that's nothing more than an interface, right? And let's call that interface project. So now A is going to depend on interface project and B depends on interface project. So now there's no longer a line from A to B. They're both pointing to that interface project. So am I alone here then that in this portion, it seemed like it was understood that dependency injection is used? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Because yeah. he never describes, he described, you know, using dependency inversion to, to invert the direction of the dependency with the interface, but he never described, okay, well, how does the thing that needs to use the interface, how does it ultimately, like what, what method or class like how is it getting the actual instance of that other object and the only way that i could come up with was uh, dependency injection i'd say that's probably the most common i i don't know if you could but you I, can manually you, yes. like you basically have some sort of main method or some sort of bindings to find somewhere you have some sort of factory somewhere that kind yep. of it's, you know, kind of somewhat crappily encapsulates that dependency. Okay. So you but have somewhere the along the line, there has to be a, but in blue. a separate project or in a separate, yes, it would be a separate thing that would bring those together. Right. And but so that, the, that's what I'm saying. That was never, that was never part of his diagram. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you could do it. it. The dependency injection thing would be a nice configurable way to do it. Whereas if you went the the factory pattern or something like that, you'd probably have to put that in a new project that they both depend on, right? And then that way you could create those things. But you see where I'm going with this, though, because he took the time to draw out a new project that contained only the interface, but right. not the other project that you're suggesting that would have the factory right. that would include all of that, that then you don't need the dependency on that um, 
project that contained just the interface, you actually only need the dependency on the project that would create the, well, I guess you would need that, that no, because the interface project will come along for the ride. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was still weird. So the only, yeah, I'm pretty sure there were, he was assuming dependency injection. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting omission. Uh, yeah, and so you know, one simple example here could be like if I've got code that um, currently depends on a database project, I could instead swap that out with say like a interface for data provider, um, some sort of data provider module, and it just so happens that you only have the database, but you've severed that um, official line, so now um, you only have to worry about updating your say server code when the interface changes, and everything that happens behind that interface is is guaranteed to just, or it's supposed to just work. You shouldn't have to be aware of anything. Yeah, so i doing this. Oh, sorry. I was going to say doing this enables us to know how to build the application because we understand the dependencies and it just draws some, you know, clean little boxes around our stuff. Yeah, we know the order of what, what things need to be built first. Um, there was, hey, this was, was kind of funny. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I was just a little dumb when I read this part. Did you, there, so he was talking about how, uh, you know, when you have the cycles, you know, unit testing and releasing are difficult. Uh, you know, it's just difficult to isolate the components and that the build issues grow geometrically with the number of modules, right? <clears throat> now, here's the question. <laughs> where, where maybe maybe uh, I, I'm showing my own ignorance. I did you had you ever heard of geometric growth before that I, statement? I, I picture a polygon growing. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I think you meant logarithmic. Or so I've heard. I've heard of things linear. in regards to linear, logarithmic, exponential. I had never heard of geometric growth. So I had to search for it because I'm like, what? what is geometric growth? And uh, so I came up with this one definition I liked. It was hmm. geometric growth rate is applicable to compound growth over discrete periods, such as a payment and reinvestment of dividend of reinvestment of interest or dividends. So it's building on back on itself. Yeah. That's geometric okay. growth. Yeah. The definition from OECD, never heard of it. It's a constant ratio. So, yeah. Yeah, what that's you're the one. Scroll down to the middle paragraph. Uh, I didn't actually go to the page. I was looking at the Oh, Google yeah. Yeah, but that, that was the one that I liked, though. The, yeah. Um, and, and I like the example of the payment and reinvestment of interest. It was like, okay, I, I get where he's going. I, I understand now where he's talking about like the, Compound. as you add in the next component, right? It, it's it's compounding on itself, making it. But yeah, that was a weird, I would n- never heard of that term before. All right. Sorry. Hmm. Moving on. Coolness. All right. That's pretty specific. What's the next piece? All right. So the next one that we talked uh, talk about here is a uh, top down design. And basically the whole purpose of this section is to say that you can't design something perfectly from the beginning mm-hmm. because there's no way for you to see this code and see these dependencies from the very get go. The whole the whole purpose of of building software is the way he calls it is the component structures jitters as they grow, right? Which is which kind of makes sense, right? Like as you get in there, you're like, oh, wait a second, that changed a little bit, or this requirement's not what we thought it was. 
And so these things are shifting around on you. So to try and spend just a crazy amount of time up front trying to get the perfect architecture and perfect design to get those acyclic dependency graphs set up properly is not the way to do it, right? Yeah, there was, he describes it really well in this section where he was saying that this diagram, the component dependency diagram, this is a map uh, to the buildability and maintainability of the application. And so you can't, you can't build the map. You can't create a map of the buildability of it until you have something that you can build. And then once you have something that you can build and you can build the that map, then you can decide, oh, I don't like the map. I need to make these adjustments, uh, you know, to get rid of cycles and things like that. I think that's so important, though. Like what you said with the the buildability and the maintainability of the application. All of this that we're talking about in this chapter has nothing to do with the quality of code, has nothing to do with, you know, did you do your classes a proper way? It's all about how do you grow the application in a way that's not going to drive you crazy or, or introduce just tons of build problems. This is all about how do you make it to where this thing can grow and still be maintained over time in a component way, not not at the low-level class code way at the component way. Now, we will talk about code ways to make that possible, but it, it is interesting that that is the call out. Yeah, the, the, the most common theme of any software uh, craftsmanship book that you'll ever read is going to be that you got to just iterate. Yep. Yep. Don't ever think that you can do it all in one shot. Yeah, when we say uh, it talks about the buildability and not the functionality, it's like you kind of, if you think about that simple example we gave of a website that has like UI, a server, and a database, and maybe we'll say a logging framework, someone says, okay, so how do uh, return, um, you know, refunds work? And you're like, oh, well, uh, you start with the UI and the server and the database, and there's a lot of logging mixed in there. It's like, okay, so well, what the heck? Uh, it just doesn't really make sense for that. So this was just about the buildability. Right. Oh, so what parts of the application then are the most volatile? That one's and, interesting. We haven't really talked about volatile, but it basically just means uh, what changes the most. And so um, as far as the ability, buildabilities... <laughs> Buildability. I've always heard that the UI is like the most expensive code because it's re rewritten so often. I don't know if that's actually true or not. The book uh, mentions the database being particularly volatile because changes happen a lot to it. Um, well, pretty much anytime you're adding any sort of new concept or anything, you're you know adding columns or tables or whatever. Yeah, I would probably we we have business rules here with a question mark. I'd say that's probably once you lock those things down, those probably don't change a ton at least for your main use cases, right? I would say the UI is probably the one that feels like, because it's the most, it's, it's the most um, affected by whims or, or new designs or, hey, we want to try this. We want to split test something. We want to do whatever, right? Like it's the thing that people, that they interact with. And so it's the one that's, that people want to tweak the most. Well, I do feel like business rules kind of change uh, just because we never get them right. Like if we ever got them right, <laughs> it would probably be different. Uh, but, uh, you know, you give an example. It's like we say no returns after 30 days. 
unless a customer service agent says so. Oh, but now, you know, so there's one change and, and say, well, that customer service person is having too often. Now we need accounting approval. So, you know, we do that. And so now accounting is getting too much. So now accounting needs to only approve things more than $500. It's like, okay, that's, this is obviously <laughs> changing a lot. And that's, you know, just one very small example. But I do think that there is some flex in business rules there, even if it's just minor, like changing, you know, from four to a five or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I agree that you're probably going to see the most change on the UI um, because that's where your your customers are going to be. So you're going to want to keep the attraction high. You don't want it to be stale. Um, so you, you're going to want to keep that up. But one that you guys maybe haven't considered is what about non-functionals, mm. right? Like changes to uh, what you're logging or how you're logging or um, – well, we got to make this change because we want this to process faster or we want to split up the architecture so that we can uh, deploy independently. Oh, God, we went too far to microservices. It's time to bring that back. <laughs> Nobody ever yeah, said that. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yes, yeah, so after reading this book, I did a little uh, kind of holiday project. Where I did a game. And the first thing I tried to do was like, okay, I'm going to think like architect. Let me draw some boxes. And I started trying to kind of draw stuff, but what I ran into really quickly is like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know, you know, I don't know what kind of game I'm making. I'm making a bunch of assumptions. So it didn't really make much sense for me to draw anything. Plus I was, I was doing just what the book says is not a good idea where I was like drawing components, like here's my graphics layer and here's my data storage, whatever that I'm trying to figure out, like how the gameplay works from that. And it just wasn't happening. You were trying to draw the map before you had anything to build. Yeah. And I wasn't even drawing the right things, you know? (laughs) Like, let me draw a map. Okay. Uh, here's some blue. <laughs> Red. Uh, Have a little green over here. Yeah. All right. Start navigation. That's no, working. Yeah. Right code. Yeah. <laughs> Good enough. So uh, so one thing I thought was cool is like we talked about this this component diagram and dependencies and the buildability. Um, who makes that diagram? When do they make it? According to Uncle Bob, it would be the architects. Is that like a Monday morning, like we all draw our component diagram? Well, when does this happen? This is, this is, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're baiting me, but I'm going to take it. (laughs) So he says that, uh, this is a quote from the book. The component dependency graph is created and molded by architects to protect stable, high value components from volatile components. Okay. So maybe this is the kind of case where someone would say, you know what? The developers are going a little crazy. They're complaining that the code is hard to work with. Let's draw our components up here and see if we can figure out where some of our trouble spots might be and what to do about it. Yeah, probably. And I'd I'd venture to say that you'd probably use tools like, you know, the Visual Studio analysis thing to show you where your dependencies are or independ or, you know, any number of other things to assist with that, right? And and I feel like we're going to talk a little bit about how we can quantify some of the stuff here in just a little bit. But maybe going back to part of Joe's question though, about like, was that a Monday morning thing or whatever? Um, you know, maybe some static analysis tools in your build pipeline. Totally. Cause right? they could even mm-hmm. spit out the reports and you could have thresholds set up to alert you of some of these things. Right. Or, or if nothing else, just to keep it up to date. So that, you know, when you do want to see it at a minimum, at least it's already there. Right. Yep. A release is taking longer than anticipated. Why is that? Let me go look at our, our dependency graph and see what's going on. 
Yeah, and yeah, that's a good way to kind of get th- this kind of conversation started. Like if you're working with somewhere and you're feeling some of the pain about the code and management's tired of hearing you complain about the code, and they're not really taking it seriously. Maybe you can say, you know what, let's throw some static analysis on here so we could just kind of graph things and see that, you know, just make sure that we're going in the right direction. That's something measurable. That's something management would normally like. And you can do it really cheaply sometimes, sometimes, you know, maybe even free. Man, so uh, it's something to consider to get that conversation going. It's been a long time since we've talked about static analysis. I think it's worth saying the whole reason it's called static analysis is because it's analyzing the code after it's built or it's analyzing the state of the code. It's not it's not analyzing it running. It's not any of that. It's just looking at dependencies and how things are connected and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's worth knowing that when we talk about static analysis tools, it's literally just looking at how your code is set up and connecting the dots between everything. And uh, I've never seen a static analysis tool that will uh, like call out individuals. <laughs> so you don't have to be to worry about like campaigning for getting the static analysis into the pipeline and then having uh, the first report come back like Joe's code stinks the most. <laughs> well, that's why I like to make all my namespaces like that. Joe's code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. So uh, let's take a little break and talk about how much we love reviews. And uh, we actually set up uh, a URL. So you can go to codingblocks.net slash review. And we have links there to iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podchaser, um, anywhere else that you might be able to leave a review. And we know that, you know, iTunes is a pain in the butt if you don't run it. Um, but a lot of times you can even do that stuff in the, in the apps there. So um, we, we love that stuff that the reviews are really huge for us finding new listeners and kind of um, surviving and competing with other podcasts. So uh, we love those reviews. We get fantastic ones. We love reading them. And so uh, if you've got a few minutes, uh, please hook us up. And with that, we head into my favorite portion survey says all right so last episode we asked how many developers are at your company and your choices are just me about five like captain planet or closer to the 20 mark headphones are required or 100 crazy right or thousand plus enterprise all right let's go with joe First, uh, I'm going to say um, about five. About with, five. Um, okay. 30%. Five at 30%. Yeah, mm. I know anecdotally, we don't hear a lot from people working at really large companies. Like you would think, you know, Microsoft has like 80 bazillion developers that, you know, just based on those numbers alone, you'd see a lot of activity from those. But I think a lot of those bigger companies kind of have a, like a closed ecosystem. And so, there's not a lot of kind of people necessarily speaking out or kind of living out in the greater dev world if they work at one of these large companies. So I'm going to, I'm going to go small. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of thinking along the same lines just because I feel like a lot of people that, that hunt out podcasts or learning things are because they're not immersed as much in it and they just, they, they thirst for it. And so I'm thinking smaller as well. I don't want to pick the same one you did. So I'm going to say closer to 20. And I'll go with, I'll, I'll say 30% on that one also. Okay. Survey says. We're both wrong. No, Joe nailed it. Awesome. It was uh, about five, 30%. 
Really? Was the top top choice. 30% yep. on the money? Yep, he hit it on the money. Cheater. <laughs> what do I win? Yeah. So that was that was very interesting. And I guess it kind of makes sense, though, because most businesses out there aren't uh, dev shops, mm. right? So, you know, it might make sense that most, you know, companies that might want devs wouldn't you know, just from us to you know numbers game, right? There would be more that wouldn't have a large team. What was the second one? Uh, you had the second. Okay. Yeah. So it is a bunch of smaller shops. Twenty, and, but it was twenty percent. Okay. Yeah. So that was fifty percent of the fell overall off makeup. After that, yeah. What was the next one? Five. Uh, well, crazy or the one hundred and uh, enterprise were both at around nineteen percent. Well, that's kind of cool. That means so, that there are people that are working in larger companies that are still trying to improve their craft. That's I, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know some of them from the tech group, but it definitely seems like the vast majority are smaller shops. Yep. Excellent. Oh, yeah. We should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we should we what, forgot Alan? to mention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we always forget about this until after the fact. So we're we're talking about clean architecture and and we love to give things away. So um be one of the people that leaves a comment on this episode with some of your thoughts about what we're talking about here. And you know, you'll be entered for a chance to win a copy of Clean Architecture by Robert C. Martin. And so, if you're looking for an idea as to what you might write about on the comment, let me give you an idea. So today's survey, we're going to ask, how often do you shut down your computer? And this was sent in from the Slack channel, and I forgot the names. Um, uh, it's either Swix or Dance to Die, yes. but I don't know which one. I think it was both. It was a combination of the two in a okay. conversation. Um, New York City represent? Yep. <laughs> how often do you shut down your computer? And your choices are... Shut down daily. Nobody does that. Every week, every month, or only when the updates force me to. Or who shuts down their computer? Or I don't shut down often, but when I do, it's because it blue screened or kernel panicked. <laughs> what about uh, adding another one because I'm a pain in the butt for vacations only? Hmm. Hmm. Sure. Okay, so PTO one maybe one for weekends. Oh, it doesn't have to be P. It doesn't have to be paid. <laughs> it just be time off. <laughs> just TO <laughs> TO. That's right. Vacay. There it is. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I shut down daily. <laughs> I don't mind saying. Ain't nobody do that. That's crazy. Yeah, no. <laughs> one, one, one third of this podcast does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do vacations. It's like symbolic. I'm like, oh yeah, this is gonna feel so good. Power off, you see like one more email come in, you're like, too late, too late. <laughs> Didn't see it. Yeah, and what really happens though is like Windows is waiting for the following applications to close and it shows you a blank list and you're like, uh, <laughs> well, damn it. <laughs> uh, oh, man, that's amazing. How, True story. How, Alan, you're not going to comment? You just never shut down? Man, I bet I shut down and every weekish huh. somewhere I, i'm curious to see like the okay so so going back to the comment uh portion of this episode if you're looking for an idea you could write in your uptime let's see 
That'd be awesome. What kind of crazy uptimes we get. If people have commas in their uptime, then I guess they're doing it right. Yeah, no doubt. But or, they're also not on Windows or Macs. <laughs> or they're doing it wrong because they're not up to date with security patches. I don't care what platform you're on. Eventually, you're, if you're going to install some patch, yeah. it's going to require an update. So, yeah, I, agree. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, shut down. And in restart. fairness, we shouldn't be talking about your Linux server that you've got shuffled away in your closet that you no, haven't no, seen no. in three years. This isn't. We're talking about. Things we're not you talking about use. appliances, right? Things that you use. Yeah, freelancers and small business owners, I feel for you. Tax season in here, and there's a good chance that many of you are trying to dig your way out from underneath a pile of receipts and spreadsheets. Do yourself a huge favor and stop digging. Before you completely disappear under the abyss of paperwork, go and check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. Not only is it going to save you a ton of time and stress, it might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes. Need to send your accountant a quick summary on the amount of tax you collected last year? How about pulling together a profit and loss summary? FreshBooks can generate these reports in seconds instead of hours it would take you to do them manually. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means next time you use your debit card for that meal, tank of gas, or new computer, boom, the purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks. All this in FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use. It's made especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers and their taxes. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding, that's C-O-D-I-N-G, and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section. And now we're moving on to the stable dependency principle. So we've been talking a little bit about volatility and stability, and um, we wanted to point out that neither one of those is like particularly a good or a bad thing. Like change is good. Not changing things is also pretty good sometimes. Uh, and volatility is necessary and expected. Now, ideally, components that we expect to change should not be dependent on by a component that is difficult to change. And when I say something is difficult to change, one way to measure that would be um, based on how many things are dependent upon it. Does that make sense? I think so. So going back to our website example, right? We want the UI to be volatile. Uh, We want the um, database to be stable. So we're okay with the middle tier depending on that database um, in terms of the stability and the volatility, but we don't want the other direction. We wouldn't want our database to be dependent on the UI since the UI is expected to change. Right. Not sure how we could actually make that happen, but it would be weird if we could. (laughs) Yeah, we want that UI to be as easy to change as possible. And uh, the easiest way we, or or one easy way to do that is to to print the dependencies on it. So it'd be kind of silly if you had some sort of bot or service that actually uh, interacted with the website to do something. Like you could imagine like some sort of integration test or something that actually went out to the website, used the login form, you know, logged in, placed an order, whatever, to do some sort of testing or something. That's something that's really common with a tool like Selenium or something else to do some sort of um, like integration or web testing. But those tests are notoriously fragile because they're depending on code that changes really often. 
and that's a bit of a problem. Uh, luckily, I don't know of too many other examples where something like interacts with a, a UI in order to uh, interact with the program that you control. Something that would normally go through the server or maybe even to the database directly. And so that's kind of an example of us not going through the most volatile code because it just doesn't really make sense. And it's a lot harder. So I think the takeaway here is to not test our UI. <laughs> right. That's, that's uh, what I got out of that. That's right. So components are um, that are dependent on more often are harder to change. And that's because um, we say they are more stable. And we do have some tools to kind of look at our components. We talked about like static analysis to figure out what which of our components are more stable. And I, I kind of have a hard time saying the word stable and meaning just that it has more dependencies on it. That's literally the definition we're going with in this chapter. And the reason they call it that is because what makes it stable is the fact that because it does have so many dependencies on it, it's really hard to change because you'd have to go touch all those things that depend on it to ensure that they all still work properly, right? And so that's the only reason it's called stable. So if you like for anybody listening, if that is that should help you. The more stable it is, the more stuff is depending on it. So the bigger pain in the butt it is to actually change that component because it's going to trickle all the way up. And stable doesn't mean good here. No, like you no. know, sometimes we'll say like a stable release. It generally means it's like it's good. Not in this case. We're literally just talking about how many things depend on it. Yeah, it, it's neither good nor bad. Neither good yep. nor bad. It's literally just hard to change. He does break apart the these though um, a little bit further on where he says that if it's so instead of instead of describing stable as the it's dependent on by a lot of things he calls it responsible right so if okay. a, if other things are dependent on that component then that component is responsible and if that component doesn't depend on anything then it's independent and then flip side you know the inverse of that is that if your component is dependent on a bunch of other things, then it is irresponsible. And uh, if it's, wait, what was that? Yeah, and if if it is, um, and if it can change because of those dependencies, then it's dependent. Yeah, and so ideally components that rely on many other components, those are the ones that you, uh, uh, that kind of by their nature are more volatile. I mean, it's easier to change because there's no downstream side effects that you need, that you're responsible for. Yep. So UIs are irresponsible. Not UI developers, just the UI. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that makes sense. Like that they would be, that they would be volatile, right? Because, you know, it, it's ultimately using, there's this, uh, indirect dependency to the database, you know, and I say indirect because it's going through some middle tier, but, and so that database is the stable, is a stable, you know, component, right? And we've, we've decided that the UI on top of that is, um, you know, volatile, you expect that that's going to change. So that makes sense that, um, you know, it, it would be like that. Yeah. I don't think I made my point. <laughs> 
No, it does. It, it, you did. It, it makes sense that that's going to be exactly that. The the volatile ones, the one you can change all the time, don't have to worry about it. Nothing's attached to it. The database being the one that's transitively attached to, you can't just change it willy-nilly because you're going to break the middle tier and you're going to break the UI. Right. And so um, we can actually measure and give ourselves a number for uh, any component stability by counting the number of dependencies that are dependent on it and how many we are dependent on. And in the formula they give in the book, it's basically just a simple ratio, but they, they say the uh, fan out, which is the, the dependencies that we're dependent on is divided by how many, how many dependencies we have plus the dependencies we have out. And we end up getting a ratio between zero and one that represents the instability. So if I say you've got an instability of, Point one, that means... Well, zero would be maximum stable, and one would indicate maximum unstable. So maximum right. stable means that you don't depend on anything else, but everything depends on you, right? That's maximum stable. Right. You have, you have things depending on you. But you depend on nothing else. So the database would be a perfect example of where... If that was your very most ending state, that would be your stable one. Or we could take so, this into another context and, and talk about like from an OS, like the kernel. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the kernel has an I or an instability of zero because it's very stable because it's got a ton of dependencies on it and it doesn't depend on anything. Correct. Whereas the opposite would be like, uh, say... I guess like a UI that has lots of dependencies on other things, but nothing depends on it. So it would be closer to a one in mm -hmm. this ratio. Completely unstable or instable, call it. Instable. Yep. And then if you're talking about the processes that hook into the kernel, that's sitting somewhere in the middle, right? Because your UI is going to use these processes that then use the kernel. Now you're probably falling somewhere in the middle, right? Like you're maybe at a 0.5 or something, who knows? But but you are both, you're somewhere in the middle of instability there because you have incoming and outgoing dependencies. So if we were to run this formula on each of the components on our simple website example, I would expect that website to be a one, just like we said, because it has nothing depending on it and it depends on lots of other stuff. Um, the middle tier now is a little bit different. It has something depending on it, the UI, and it depends on the database. So I'm going to say that's going to be, you know, roughly, um, it's going to be 0.5, right? Because it's the if we're doing one in out, out over yeah. the in plus the out, so one over two. So it's it's right in the middle. Now, now I do want to back up here for a second and say, from a more realistic, more architectural standpoint that we're talking about typically we're going to be talking about things at a particular tier right so let's say that we we're talking about the middle tier you're going to have various components within that middle tier to where the dependencies are on each other right so we talked about logging you have maybe an accounting thing maybe you have a customer service module authentication maybe authentication all kinds emailing, of things notifications this is where it all really comes in we're, we're grossly oversimplifying it just so that we can talk about three layers and make these numbers mean something but when applied more at a particular uh, application and all the modules within the application that's where this stuff really becomes useful 
Yeah, and I'm going to want to see all those kind of guys. Like, I want to, um, if I was going to do static analysis on the project, I'm going to see, want to see most of those guys somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the 0.5 range to, you know, some sort of standard deviation there. And something like a database that pro- provides like a foundation and doesn't really depend on much else, that should be closer to the zero. So now if you've got an email service or something and it's, it's showing as really close to a one or really close to a zero, then that's something that you want to take a look at because that's something that's kind of fishy. It's in the middle of your um, stability, but it's either got a lot of stuff depending on it that probably shouldn't be, or it has nothing depending on it, which is, you know, just throw away code and what's it doing? The cool thing here though, is that we've now learned a way that we can talk about our, the quality of our code in regards to math. Yes, a quantifiable right approach. So there was a an interesting way of expressing this that I wanted to just read where he was talking about like if when when it's i is equal to when the i metric is zero, when the instability metric is equal to one. I'm sorry, I said zero first, but I meant one. Um, when it's equal to one, it's the lack of dependence gives the component no reason to not change. Um, and the components that depend on it may give it ample reason to change. So this is kind of where I, I kind of got ahead of myself and lost my my point before. But um, going back to that UI example, right? Because the UI isn't dependent on things like the database, or um, nothing's dependent on the on the UI, like the database isn't dependent on the UI. Then there's no reason to not change the UI. Right. If you want to change the logo, you want the logo to be on fire. Sure. Make the logo on fire. You want to change the color. Sure. Change the color. Like there's no reason to not change it. Right. It's, it's easy. Nothing's depending on it. Right. But, uh, now when, you know, the database tier changes the way, um, maybe addresses are stored, right. Then the UI might have to reflect that change back out. Right. So, um, it, there's no reason for that um, that that component to not that UI component to not change, but yet it because of its dependencies it can have reason to change, right? And uh, you know inverse that is it says when it's equal to zero, its dependence make it hard to change the component, and it has no dependencies that force it to change, right? So nothing's forcing the database to change per se. Uh, unless we go back to like non-functionals, but let's let's ignore that. Nothing's going to force that database to change, but um, you know because of the things that are dependent on it, it's going to be really painful to make those changes. And when you do need to make those changes, it's a coordinated effort a lot of the times. And and I don't even think we have it in the notes here, but this is or do we? Let's see what, okay, no, this is this is perfect. So we do have this, and it should sort. So. So your most unstable, we talked about the website, but let, let's go into what we had sort of talked about in, in component things so that you have loggers and database and, and authentication and all that kind of stuff. When you look at your chain of dependencies, your higher instability ratings should be at the top and it should go down to your lowest down at the bottom. Everything, every time you go down one of those tiers and you look at those dependencies, anything that's below it should have a lower value. And that's one of the things that he says here, the SDP, so the stability, 
dependency. Stable dependencies principle. Thank you. It says that if the I metric of a component should be larger than the I metric of the components that it depends on. So as you're going down, that stability number, that instability number should go down. Yeah, if you think about um, either the Spotify example where you can listen on the web, you can listen on iOS, you can listen on uh, Android, you can listen on I don't know, your watch, whatever. Um, each one of those is, you know, you know, we'll just call them component for now. Um, each one of those components is, is at the edge. Those are the most volatile. So if you want to change the orientation of the watch or you want to change the colors on the, the iOS version, you know, you can go ahead and do that without affecting anything else. But if you change like the core database or the the server logic, then you could potentially have to change all of those those leaf nodes, right? So uh, it it it's a way of kind of um, well, one thing that's nice about this is if you've got this organized well, then someone knows whenever they make a schema update that they can tack on a couple extra days to that estimate because um, you know it's got a lot of downstream effects. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, like. Uh- and, and if you don't believe me, just go rename one of your tables and see how much other code you have to touch. Man, I actually yeah. had somebody tell, ask me years ago, hey, if I change this this column name, is that going to mess you up? I was like, what? Do you have to change your query? <laughs> like, that right. was my question back. Like, yeah. you change that column name, what do you got to do? <laughs> All right, yeah. now multiply that times three or four. Like, right. seriously. Oh. Yep. It hurt my brain. And uh, we can kind of um, minimize some of those changes that are necessary by like having um, you know, nice clean uh, version numbers. And so iOS could de- depend on our, you know, server project 1.2 and Android could be like 1.1 1. 1 or whatever. Um, we could also use the de- dependency injection principle to create an abstract component that can kind of uh, uh, just as, a- act as a, an interface between components and keep things separated and act as a buffer. Wait, you mean the dependency inversion principle? Did you? Uh, injection principle. Uh, this is the one that. This I, is what I wrote. Yeah, I don't know if that's right that, or not. Um, I had mentioned earlier where this might be nothing more than a project full of interfaces. The project does nothing itself, but it gives you a way to change the dependency flow, right? I'm assuming we're talking about the D from solid, right? Yeah, it's inversion principle. Okay. I Just wrote it wrong. Updating the show notes so that. Yeah. All right. We have awesome show notes. You should check them out. We do. We hope you check them out and you can comment on them. Yes. I even drew the triangle last time. (laughs) So you should definitely go look at my pretty drawing. Uh, The the ultra confusing triangle. There needed to be a a picture of that triangle. All right. So (laughs) um, apparently we're not good at describing pictures on. on Especially not triangles. (laughs) Not triangles. They're so hard. There's too many sides. Right. Do we get some feedback about that? <laughs> so many angles. I, I think we had some people who were like, man, I was so confused. Oh, um, dang. Yeah, we were too. That's all right. Uh, we're going to do it again here in a minute. Yeah. <sighs> all right. So the next one we have is the stable abstractions principle. And this one basically says that a component should be as abstract as it is stable. And so what does that even mean? Right. So, 
basically the gist of it is code and stable components are the hardest to change. So we shouldn't put logic that is likely to change in there. Stable abstraction principle states that a stable component should also abstract. So the stability does not prevent it from being extended. Unstable components should be concrete since its instability allows concrete code within it to be changed. So basically what they're saying is create abstract, abstract classes or interfaces for your stable components. And then that way you can extend those things. You can, you know, make other things do what they need to do. And those are sort of your contracts for it. I, I was kind of curious about this section because he, he definitely, uh, even in the pages leading up to this one and going forward from here was referring to the abstract classes. And then I was like, well, I wonder why the template pattern isn't enough. Like it's never, it wasn't mentioned in any part of this, but I was like, well, couldn't that also help with that, uh, you know, adhering to the open close principle policy? Well, that's sort of what an abstract class would give you, right? If we're talking about, uh, it kind of does because those are pluggable patterns that get overridden, right? <clears throat> and so yeah, an, abstract- an abstract class though is one that you would have, there is no, there is no instance of it. You'd have to create a class it. that, that yeah. inherits from it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, to take advantage of the template pattern, you'd have to inherit as well. But it was just curious, though, to me that his answer to this was only about abstract class and not like other ways that deal with the open close. Because this was, you know, this is we've seen this pattern where at the component level, a lot of these principles, there is a a corresponding class level principle that goes along with it. Right. Yes. Um. And you know, this was along the lines of staying close to the uh, open close principle. So I think totally, yeah, the template the template pattern would would fit into this thing. Um. <clears throat> and for those not familiar with a template um, pattern, a template method pattern, like picture you have a class, and um, you have certain methods in that class that you allow your users the ability to override, and then you have some other method that um, we'll call all of those methods in order. And so if, you know, one of those methods was overwritten, it's, it's going to end up calling your method. So, um, you know, I'm trying to think like if you had uh, a, a, a class, let's just call it, let's just say you ha- had a method one, method two, method three, and then you had a run method that calls method one, method two, method three, and you allow your users to, or anyone who's developing on your class, they could over provide an override to method one or method two and or method three. And so when that run method gets called, it'll call the appropriate method. At the appropriate time. Yes. So it's, you know, the template method pattern is just a neat little way of, of allowing your users and users in this context would be developers, but allowing your users the ability to inject their own functionality in certain places, maybe in its entirety, maybe they replace entirely whatever the previous functionality was, or maybe they only um, replace, you know, a portion of it. So this is kind of interesting because I mean, the, the whole thing about an abstract class, like he doesn't dictate, at least not in this chapter, as far as I remember, and maybe it's further in the book is, is they talk about the amount and, and we'll get into some of the equation stuff here in a minute, but the amount of abstractness in it, Right. So I don't know if he's saying that 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 
that component that's being relied upon, just basically the nature of it is abstract, right? Like there's not a ton of implementation in it or what is in it is fairly bare bones. And then if you want to use it, you're going to have another component outside of it that extends or implements that, you know, that. Uh, So maybe I read abstract as abstract class and that's not what he meant. Yeah, and, that's possible. And that's what I don't know. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't necessarily spell it out completely, but it, it could be that you know you have the abstract classes in there, but you also have implementations within that. It, and I don't know within the component. And that's that's kind of what I'm getting at because Yeah, no, you're probably right. That that's probably a better uh interpretation of this of this portion. But we talked about earlier too, like we you sort of almost have to make the leap or the assumption that he's also assuming to a certain degree that that you're doing dependency injection. And that could be part of this as well, right? Like it could be that you have this abstract component down here and then there's all these other components out here that could just be injected in that extended that thing. So it's hard to say there's, there's a lot of interpretations we can make here, but willing, you know, at least keep that in mind. So check this out, like our, our Spotify example, right? We've got, we'll say um, five different, you know, kind of clients or UIs depending on a server project depending on a database project. Now, the stability of that server project is really high because it's got five dependents on it. So, you know, I guess the the the, uh, the ratio would probably just be one. I don't know. I, my math is terrible. Anyway, it's, it's going to be really stable, which is unfortunate because that's kind of like the core of our logic, right? It's the core of our business. So we've got a problem there where we've got five things depending on one thing, which is really stable. And we also want it to be able to change really often, like whenever the database changes. So one way to kind of change those numbers is to introduce an abstract module so that those five UIs depend on that abstract module. Now that abstract module is really stable. It's hard to change that abstract module. And we make that abstract module depend on that that server project. Am I cheating the numbers? Wouldn't that still have that? the same same indirect um, dependency though? Is like, that because you count all you, the fan out is everything recursively or is the fan out just your direct dependence? Well, the, the answer, okay, so you had one server project and five UI projects, so it'd be one divided by five. So you're getting closer to zero to, would be maximum stability, right? Okay, you're right, yeah. Yeah, so so your answer would be 0.2. Um, but, I, yeah, I guess he doesn't really say that you would count indirect. So it can, uh, it can. So if you think about it, you you have modified the equation. So in the case of where you're talking about, let's just let's keep it simple so that you have the five to one, right? You're at 0.2 right there. If you introduce that abstract one, in between now, now you have five going into it and one going out. So now you've basically got... Um, you've just moved the stability to the abstract. You have. But now that makes the... Um, Server side one-to-one. It's one divided by one. Um, so it would be maximum... Uh, no, no, it would have no outgoing. The server would then be zero. So it would be completely stable. It That's... Yeah, that's it would weird. be... the the The... It would be depended on by the abstract. Right. So it would be one divided by one. So it would be maximum unstable. Sorry, it would be, it would be one divided by two because it's Wait. it's um, one over in plus out. 
Yeah. It, well, it. Well, no, the out would no, be. No, no. It's in over N plus out. Or out it's over. It's out divided by out N plus, plus N. out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it would be zero. So one it would still by two. be. It'd be maximally stable. But the problem is. Oh, no. If it's one divided by two. No, it's, it's 0.5. It's right in the middle. 0.5. Wait. I thought we said it was zero over. Man. No, it's one over one plus one. So that means I messed up my point uh, two before then. No, no. Instability is fan out divided by fan in plus fan out. So right. if that server project doesn't reference anything else, there is it no does fan the database. out. Oh, the, yeah, database. the database. Okay, I got you. Yeah, so the database now is uh, fan out of zero divided by zero plus one. So it's mostly stable. It's hard to change. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really hard to change because it doesn't depend on anything. Uh, it only has some stuff depending on it. The server now, because of this kind of uh, abstract shim we've put in place, is now more volatile. So just by adding a simple little kind of um, abstract module there, we bought ourselves some volatile freedom. Some wiggle room, basically. Yeah. It feels like cheating, though, doesn't it? No, but that's that's what you do, right? Like anytime you need to change something that has been dependent upon concrete implementations, the easiest thing to do is to supplement in like an interface and then just change the the piece that was there before, right? So so initially, like I guess in if you're thinking about an iterative approach to swapping something out, right, without just having to gut the entire thing initially is everything that was a concrete implementation previously, change that to an inter interface, the uh, contract that's going to be done, right? And the first step is you put those interfaces in place and it can still use that existing piece there. But now you can easily swap out those things one by one, right? To say, oh, it's depending on, you know, I authorization, right? And now you're changing out your entire authorization thing. So now you can just swap out the, the back end concrete implementation that was plugging into that I authorizer. And so, so you're buying yourself that wiggle room. So it is cheating, but it's the way to do it without having to hard, you know, almost full scale redo everything. Yeah, and without that abstract uh, component there, then as soon as you compile that server, you'd have to compile all five of those UIs. Like the computer, you know, the compiler doesn't know any different. By having the abstract module now, you only have to worry about those five leaf nodes if the interface between them changes. Which, or another way of saying it is if the contract between them changes, in which case, well, yeah, of course you do then. Right. So it provides a nice little buffer there. It just kind of feels like cheating to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's that's kind of interfaces are, you know, they they just provide a clean line and a contract between two things. So by um, it's just kind of interesting that it changes the numbers dramatically just by kind of in inserting that little module there. Yeah. OK, so let's go. Let me recalculate then this instability of that abstract component in that example. So that abstract component is dependent on the stable server side but it has five UI dependencies to it. So we're talking about one divided by five plus one, right? So one divided by six. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that's pretty small, which means it's very stable. Uh, Correct. Yeah, stable, yes. Correct. Yeah. means it's hard to change. So when, um, when all those five UIs were dependent on our server. It was really hard to change the server. 
but we put that little shim in there and now it's not so hard. Now it's hard when we change that shim, when we change that abstract module, we've got the pain there, but that, that should be minimized to only when it really matters. That almost sounds like for whatever reason though, that we're breaking that whole SDP thing where it's got to get smaller as it goes down because now you introduce that shim, that's one divided by six. Now your next one is one divided by two. So it's 0.5, right? So yeah. your other one was much lower. Now you went down to a 0.5 and now you're going down to a zero to your database. Right? Uh, other way. So the leaf nodes are all ones because they don't have any dependencies. They're all... Um, you draw the stable things at the top. Right, right. So the database would be in the top of your drawing. So when you're going down, you're drawing from the database down. Oh, I was saying the opposite direction. Oh, but either way, like those, those five... Stable things... No, he's got the unstable. Oh, I'm sorry. At the top. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Put the unstable. Putting the unstable components at the top of the diagram is a useful convention because any arrow that points up is violating the stable dependencies principle. And later we'll see the acyclic dependencies. And that's yeah. That's yeah. what's weird is what we're saying is you put that shim in there. It's now one divided by six, and then that's going into a one divided by. Well, one two. divided by six would be point sixteen or seventeen, if you depending on how you but, went around. But then, if you were going from that shim into just your, uh, I don't know what we were calling it, the server component or whatever it was, now that's mm -hmm. one in and one out, so that's one divided by two. So you just went from point one six to point five, right? Yeah. And then you're going to point zero. So you just violated that SDP principle of everything is pointing downwards. No, the point the, the arrows are still pointing, but there, the number is not decreasing like you were saying. No, no, I think what you're saying is right. So we're saying we've got a 0.17 instability depending on a 0.5 instability, which depends on a 0.0 or, or a zero. zero. Right. So what happens is that that means we've got something that's stable depending something on something that's volatile. So the whole point of us putting that little shim project in there was to buy us some volatility, which we did. But that's a bad thing because now we've got something that's volatile being dependent on by something that's stable. And I think I think really the only reason this is a problem here and what we're talking about is this is such a contrived example in that you would never just introduce one thing. It, it's never going to be a one-to-one -one type thing when you get down to that level. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be multiple components yeah, yeah. all depending on that server level. And I think that in real world, you would see those numbers play out better. I don't think I don't think that you would ever introduce just a one-to-one -one mapping of all the interfaces that a UI is going to have into the server project. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think that those contrived numbers are probably muddy in the waters here a little bit. But yeah, it, yeah, sh it shouldn't. We're do sorry, that. dear listeners, for for <laughs> going into like arguing about these numbers and stuff. It's got to be really confusing. But this has actually been really eye-opening for me, and it actually makes me really happy that that my little cheater solution there is violating one of these other principles. <laughs> so even though it makes the numbers look good in one way, it's actually causing another problem. And it's uh, kind of in evidence there and can be detected by static analysis who can say, Hey, the numbers go smaller, smaller, bigger, smaller. What gives? I, I mean, this actually reminds me of, of something that we've talked about that we want to do an episode on is the onion architecture. The whole idea is that your dependencies are constantly pointing down towards the middle, Right. And that's sort of what this thing is. It's basically anything that has less dependencies are out on this outer ring and you just keep pointing down until you get into these things that to where, you know, basically everything's referencing them. 
This book actually goes in something very similar and they call it the clean architecture. It's like the last freaking chapter. Yeah. But they basically draw the onion and uh, rename it and probably tweak a few things. Nice. All right. I think Allah's doing some math over there. Yeah, I, I think we... No. No, it was just... I mean, because um, I, I was just going back over that portion of the book where we were talking about the numbers because where you were getting not hung up on the numbers, but where you were talking about like the numbers decreasing and it, because it wasn't decreasing um, that it was violating the stable dependency principle. And in the, that particular paragraph in this chapter where he was describing that it was a little unclear the first time that I was reading it because um, his arrow, the way he drew the diagram, it went in the direction that he wanted, but the, the arrows went in the direction that he wanted but the numbers didn't, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to round this out, the gist of it is this. I'm trying to reread it is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's fair. Stable means use interfaces and abstract classes. Instable, use concrete implementations. So you can change, change them as much as you want at will. And your dependencies are going to run in the direction of abstraction. So, the further you go down towards those stable items, the more abstract they should be, meaning interfaces, abstract classes, that type of thing. Even the template pattern. I, another way to say that is like if you expect something to be instable, then you expect more concrete classes. Yeah. yeah. But the things that Can you expect say? to be stable, you should expect it to have more interfaces and or abstract classes. Yep. Yeah. Just want to say, uh, I am so glad that we're talking about this. Back in the day, back in the day, I would read a tech book, and then, like you know, two weeks later, I've forgotten half the stuff, and you know, it just didn't really stick. But kind of like talking this stuff out, um, hashing it out, trying some examples, seeing how the numbers turn out. Like, I feel like it really helps me kind of sink in. And so, we hope we're not annoying you guys, uh, dear listeners, because we love you, and uh, we think that you should read along with us and let us know what you think in the comments or in the Slack. Definitely. We're so, not done yet, so if you've enjoyed our math so far, <laughs> then let's let's bring this together with measuring abstraction. So get ready. This is propeller hat time. It is. All right. So abstractness equals the number of classes divided by the number of abstract Plus uh, interfaces, I, sorry. Yeah. Abstract classes or Abstractions interfaces. Abstractions or, and or, you know, abstract classes and or interfaces. Yep. Let me rephrase that. Sorry. Let me rephrase Operator that. overloading. Abstractness equals the number of classes divided by the number of abstract classes or interfaces. So an example of the abstract module or abstract component where the only things in there would be abstract classes, it would be number of classes would be, you know, say a hundred and the number of abstract classes or interfaces would be a hundred. So we'd have a ratio of one. So it's perfectly abstract. And the opposite would be if we've got a, a class library, say like the database library is probably a good one where um, we've got a, you know, an ORM or something. So each class in there is a concrete class that maps to a table and so there are probably no abstract classes or no interfaces there. And in that case, our number of classes would be, say, 100. 
and our number of abstract classes in our interfaces would be zero. And crap, divided by zero error. But I'm going to assume uh, asymptotically that it's zero. <laughs> right. So uh, this ratio is another zero to one ratio. Zero implies that the component has no abstract classes at all. And one implies that the component only has abstract classes or interfaces. Yep. Yep. And um, now it's, what's really cool is we can chart these two numbers. So they're, they're two ratios, right? They're two percentages, call it. We can graph both of these on a simple kind of Cartesian XY plot and get a really nice point on a chart that represents our component. And so let's try and describe this chart real quick. And we might have to draw a picture on the, uh, on the notes. Um, so it's a pretty simple plot. If you think about it, you're only dealing with zero and one. So on an XY graph. Yes. On your Y axis, you have your abstractness on your horizontal X axis. You've got your instability. All right. So zero is completely stable one is completely unstable on your abstractness zero is you have zero abstractness one is you're completely abstract right so again a your your abstractness on left your instability on the bottom all right now here's what's interesting if you go to um one or zero one which would be you know the top left of your chart and you drew a line Diagonally down to the bottom right of your chart, you'd be at one zero. Wait a minute. <clears throat> let's let's put some words behind those numbers. So if it's at zero one, it's in the upper left of this XY, right? It's maximally stable in it and abstract. Right? Correct. Yep. And Correct. if it's at the f the bottom right. Bottom right. Uh, it w at point one zero, then it's maximally unstable and concrete. Correct. And then this line down through the middle of this chart. So if you think about it like a square now, um, your your zero to one one square that you've got there, you've got that diagonal line from the top left down to the bottom right. That's called your main sequence, and this is kind of where you want to be, for the most part. All right. Now, if we talk about the bottom left of that chart, which is zero, zero, this is basically completely not abstract and completely stable. Correct? Yes. Then, right. So it's concrete and stable. Concrete and stable. This is called the zone of pain. And the reason this is the zone of pain is because it's stable, meaning there are many dependencies on it. But it is completely not abstract, and it's all concrete, which means it is incredibly hard to change. So You've got no buffer. No buffer whatsoever. You have zero wiggle room. Changing this thing means that you have to change every dependency that is hooked into it, all the way up the chain. Yeah, so just a quick summary of how he defined the zone of pain at point zero zero is highly stable and concrete component. It is not desirable because it is rigid and cannot be extended because it is not abstract, making it very difficult to change because of its stability. 
Yep. So going back to what we talked about earlier, if you if you write code and let's talk about typed languages because the easiest to sort of box you into this is if you have a concrete class, let's call it person, and you change that class from first name to first underscore name, everything that relies on that person implementation now has to change how they reference that first underscore name. Everything up the chain, right? If instead that thing is an interface and and we call this thing iPerson and iPerson is fulfilled by dot first name, then it doesn't matter what that concrete implementation underneath it. That person class could change the underscore first name, but when it returns something back for first name, it'll have to map that un- that first underscore name to the the interface first name. And that's why you get the wiggle room because that interface is what everything else knows about. They don't care about your concrete implementation. And that's why this is called the painted zone. If you've got only concrete implementations, then everything's tied directly to it. There's no way to get out of it. So zero, zero concrete and stable is the zone of pain. So what a better alternative would be is if we are really stable, then we want to be more abstract. This would be zero comma one, and it's right on that main sequence line that Alan mentioned in the top left there. So, you know, if we're stuck being stable, we have a lot of dependencies and we need those dependencies on us, then we want to try and be more abstract. Alternatively, another um, way of kind of fixing that problem would be to get rid of those dependencies. In that case, we say, it's okay to be more concrete, but we need to have less dependencies on us. And that would move us towards the right side, the bottom right side of that square. And that's also another point on that main sequence there. All right. And this is where things get um, kind of funny. So now we've talked about the everything from the line on down to the bottom left, right? Now let's talk about what's up in that upper right-hand corner, which is completely abstract and 100% unstable. This is called the zone of uselessness. (laughs) And I love this. And we've talked about this in the past when we were talking about solid, Joe, you remember, you're like, you have 5 billion interfaces and and nothing actually does anything, right? This is called the zone of uselessness because if something is 100% abstract, but there's nothing dependent upon it, meaning if it's 100%, um, um, unstable, meaning there's no dependencies. Why you have all this abstractness? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't buy you anything. There's nothing using it. It's it's a waste. Well, another way to say this is you have a bunch of interfaces. Let's say you have a a component that's nothing but interfaces, but nothing uses any of those interfaces. Right. That's in this one one uh, zone of uselessness. Yep. And so, and they call it the software that inhabit this region are detritus. (laughs) That's awesome. I really enjoyed that. I actually had a hard time kind of imagining this happening in in practice where you end up with with something in the completely in that corner of the zone of uselessness. But I can very much imagine very easily something ending up at that zero, zero zone of pain where you have like a core library, which is dependent on by everything and is full of concrete classes. But. The opposite, where it's like a UI that's only interfaces, like 
How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it can happen only when people go crazy, right? Like they learn about interfaces and like interface all the things, right? <laughs> That's where you end up in that top right corner. But I would agree. You're more likely in any business environment going to see stuff in that bottom left corner a lot, right? Just concrete implementations where people didn't use interfaces, any abstraction whatsoever, and you're just sort of cornered, right? Like it's one of those things where you cringe every time you have to change that code. Yeah. And zone uselessness is like, when do you change these interfaces? Like nothing depends on it. So it does like you can change it. It's completely meaningless. But there could be a, th- a case where like, say your st- static analysis covers your code, but you you know provide your code online or something or, or whatever to some third party that actually consumes and uses those interfaces. And so maybe it does make sense. And it just kind of uh, looks a little strange on static analysis. Uh, but that's, un- that's unfortunate. Is yeah, how do you keep track of or how do you um, chart like what you're doing? <laughs> you know, if you make a mistake or something, how do you even know if you have nothing consuming it? So maybe you should build at least like a reference implementation or something or throw it in the static analysis there to, to keep you, you know, accountable. Independent, sonar cube, there are many options. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, one thing that I was, ke- I was just kind of like thinking about is, um, one of the things you guys said was something about like it was stable, maximally stable and maximally concrete. Yes. Right. Zone of pain. Uh, no, no. Right. Cause the zone of pain was, uh, yeah. Stable and concrete. Yep. Can't yeah, it's change. really confusing. Cause the eye oh, right. is highly instability stable and, highly, and highly concrete. Yep. Never mind. Yeah, it's um, this one. I really hate that it's instability. And this isn't a, a concept uh, invented by this book. This is something we saw in the end pin graphs too, where instability is graphed on the bottom. So a zero of instability is the bottom left. And that's the same as saying stable. So you're t- constantly tempted to say stable, which throws you off with the numbers. And even talking left to right is confusing because of that. But right. the graph is actually instability. So the left is more stable. Yeah, it's like when you're looking at code and somebody says something, something not equal false, and you're like, "What? Did, well, hold on, wait a second. Yeah, what, that what, little knot is so <laughs> what, confusing. What did you do? <laughs> right, not not or, or uh, bang bang object. Yeah, and you're like, wait, what did you hold just on. do? You, you did, huh? You. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about this now. Now that we've drawn a graph and we were able to create a scatter plot of all of our components on on this graph. This you know very simple, very small x y uh, coordinate plane here. Um, we can talk about the dis- distance from the main sequence. And again, you know, just in case, you know, what is the main sequence? That was the line going from our top left corner at zero uh, one to our bottom right corner at one zero. All right, and it's the good line. Yeah. Uh, so. We want to calculate that. So the distance is going to be the abstractness uh, plus the instability minus one. Wait. Is that a divide? Yeah, that was a divide. Huh? Is there a divide? Did I read that wrong? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. It's just the absolute value distance of... Distance is the absolute value of the abstractness plus the, plus instabil- the instability minus one. Yep. Sorry, it looked like a division symbol in the notes. Okay, so for example, um, our database project, which we said is firmly in the zone of pain, we'll just say it's um, got a zero for abstractness and zero for instability. 
So that would be um, zero plus zero minus one. So my distance from the main sequence is negative one. We said um, absolute value, so one, which is as far as you can get from the main sequence or as, as bad as you can get from the good line. Which isn't good because that means you're in one of those bad zones. Yeah. But in this case, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to avoid because database project is just kind of like that. You know, it stinks. But it's just kind of a way of showing you like that's the furthest away you can get and it's going to be a one. So, you know, one of our UI projects where I would expect it to be much more concrete and much less stable. So it's going to be much further um, towards the main sequence. I, I would expect it to have a distance of, you know, say 0.2 or 0.3 because there's no dependencies on it and because it's heavily concrete. So I would expect those guys to get better scores. But you can kind of imagine like if you took all the projects in our example there and graphed them all, we get a bunch of little dots. We'd have, sure, we'd have one over there in the zone pane for the database because it's the worst. The server would probably be not so great too because um, it doesn't really have a lot of reason to be abstract, so it'd be fairly concrete, but it have a lot of dependencies on it. So that would say, I'd say probably would be um, 0.5 on the stability and abstractness would probably be, you know, like say a point one or something. So the distance from the main sequence then, you know, would be, uh, I don't know, point three or something. So it would be a little bit further away from that line. And so it's got kind of a, a less good score there compared to our UI components, but it's much better than our database server. And it's pretty cool if you could just kind of imagine all those guys plotted there to be able to kind of see like overall, like how we're doing. And you could take a look at those outliers and decide if you're okay with them or if you want to try and do something about it. Yeah, so you can even do like um, how many standard deviations are your is your score away from that main sequence line, right? And so you want everything to be near that main sequence line. So you want it to be within one standard deviation away from that main line. Did they say one in here? Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, wouldn't you want it to be within one standard deviation? Like, why? I, I don't remember what you the, want it to be close to the line. You want it to be close, but if I remember, I mean, this is going back a while to statistics, but two standard deviations is typically like the the threshold for yeah, most, most acceptable in a, in a normal yeah, distribution. In a normal distribution, so anything outside of that would typically be bad. Because I want to say that one standard deviation is like within 1.4% or something like it's really close, but anyways, yeah, I mean, you can use statistical analysis on this and figure Wasn't out like 66%. I thought, uh, I think that's 80, what I thought. 86, point, man, I can't remember, but that's only in a normal distribution. And right. I don't know that we're saying that we should have a normal distribution, especially for only talking about number of components. Cause you can have a database component, which is way bigger than, say your server component or, you know, maybe vice versa. The server component is much bigger than a database component. And so having those as each individual dots doesn't really give you a good picture of how important those dots are. Well, what I was trying to say though, is that like, if you, if you, okay, so bell curve standard deviation, then that's where we get into like the 6895 yeah. 99 rule, yeah. right? What I'm saying is that, Ideally, if you're if everything is in that on that good line or near that good line, right, then you're going to be within that first 
uh, you know, one standard deviation away from it. Right. Yep. Yep. That's where you'd like to have the bulk of your code. And if you're within the two, you're still okay. It's the things that cross that threshold of the second of two standard deviations away from it. That's when you're going to want to compare. When you see things that are closer to that zone of uselessness, you're going to have to question like, wait, why do I have that? Is that a mistake? Right. Is that just code that we left in there by accident? Why is that there? And then the things that are in the zone of pain are going to be the things like the database that you're going to have to look at and go, well, okay, there's my hands are kind of tied there. What right. am I going to do? And, and even then, even if you start looking in, like it, at least in the chart in the book, like they just have sort of outliers in that second standard deviation. If you get into that situation where there's just a couple of things lying out there, then maybe those are things that you take a look at and say, hey, what can we do to, to make this better? Right. Like, I, I mean, there's no hard, fast rule here. Like they even go into mapping these things over time, which is interesting. Right. Like if you have a mm-hmm. like you said, you have a static analysis tool. And the reason you have that thing is because you have this updated chart of what does my stuff look like? And so you could say, hey, wait a second, this this project that used to be in pretty good standing all of a sudden dropped out here. We probably need to investigate what we need to do. So circling back to one of the comments from Earlier in the show, if you include these tools in your build pipeline, then you could be charting the this number over time, as you were saying or suggesting. So, you know, you, you could track the uh, stability of your component over time. And if as you see that it becomes more stable uh, and you didn't intend for it to be, then you can start to see like, OK, well, what actually happened? And now. Because you have that in your build pipeline and you can see that visually, then you can go back and trace like, okay, what code was introduced as at that time in that build that started creating this problem? And you can now action that as well, right? You see that that change. Oh, well, we need to introduce some interfaces here. We need to drop in some abstract classes or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. Like having those tools available nowadays is is amazing because it can really help you round out some of these things. And we keep saying independent, but I mean, you know, Sonar Cube would be just as well. And in fact, yeah. Sonar Cube supports cross way more languages. Yeah, independence for .net, Sonar Cube will handle tons of stuff. It's for everything. Yeah. And I think it builds it or it hooks into things like Jenkins and and other build pipelines as well. Well, check this out. Um so I was just about to say, like, you know what would be a cool uh, kind of exercise to do would be to look at some open source project with some of these static analysis tools and see how their um, their components line up. And then I remembered that I'd done this uh, a couple years ago and actually wrote a blog post about it. And so uh, I'm actually looking at, I put a, a link in the show notes if you guys want to take a look. I'm actually looking at a graph of exactly what we're talking about, abstractness versus instability. And the one I put in the blog post was actually SignalR, though I think I did reports for all of them. And so I'm looking at um, at SignalR. If you're not familiar with that, it's basically um, what we call it, like a real-time kind of um, web sockety library in .NET. Yep. That's about fair. And so I can see that their core library, just called SignalR, is uh, very unstable, which means there's nothing depending on it. It only depends on other things. And it's pretty low on the abstractness. So it's right within that first standard deviation. So it's right in the green zone for that uh, main sequence. And if we look at the things that aren't so much, we can actually see the Microsoft.ASP.NET SignalR core 
is uh, two standard deviations away, so it's got kind of an orange color, and it's starting to drift towards the zone of the pain, the zone of pain, and that's because it's stable, meaning lots of things depend on it, but it's not very abstract. So still a lot of concrete. This is interesting. I mean, looking at this, I, I don't think any of us really knew much about this at the time, but looking at this, the cool part is it looks like they did a pretty decent job creating an application that kept it in this. It, it's almost like the fat belt that runs through the middle of this, this graph, right? From the top left to the bottom right. And they did a pretty good job plotting these things in the right spots. Yeah, and it's actually really hard to read the graph because so many of them fall right on that main sequence line, right? And uh, and actually, in their, in their case, it's uh, highly unstable, meaning that these are probably client libraries for various different pieces. Um, and they're also very concrete, which is right on the line. And it's funny, they do have one item squarely in the zone of pain, and it's actually a, a JavaScript test library. Yeah, unit is, test, which makes sense. Yeah, it's what you'd expect, right? So it's highly concrete, but nothing depends on it. Yep. No, right, uh, no, things depend on it. Everything depends everything on depends it. Everything depends on it, but it's highly so concrete. So that's weird then. So why does everything depend on a test library? Yeah, there really shouldn't be much depending on that. That's kind of weird. So yeah, I might have bundled in my, you know, like tests or something else that doesn't really make sense to, to look at with static analysis, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's neat. Well, you could open up a uh, an issue with them and point this out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Your stuff's broke. And this is actually a pretty cool, um, like uh, there's another graph in there of, of SignalR. This is a pretty cool blog post, not to tout my own, to my own horn, but uh, this is uh, pretty cool. And a lot of it deals with this kind of stuff that we have just been talking about. You can see a dependency diagram and stuff, and you can see some really nice pictures in this blog post. So um, we've got a link in the show notes, and you should check it out. Muchos gracias. So, and uh, I think I actually, uh, it's hard to keep cutting you off. I put, um, I put uh, links to the actual reports it generated for the various projects in the post. So, should check it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So, one last thing to close this out um, was uh, there was this one statement that he says that I really liked, which is that these metrics are imperfect at best. And I think that's important to always remember, like, you know, we, we try, but just because something is in that zone of pain doesn't necessarily mean that you did it wrong or that it's awful, right? Um, you know, this metric can't necessarily reflect the usefulness of uh, your your code or that particular component. And so that's what I took kind of took away of like, okay, the, you know, we're trying to figure out a way to quantify the quality of the code, but you know, don't take it as an absolute. The quality of the code for being able to maintain and build that code over time, right? That's what this whole thing boiled down to, and that's what I think. That's for for a lot of programmers. I think the important part here is we all sort of take pride in our code, right? Like we like to write good code. We like to write code that we can come back to and be happy about, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was painless when you were working with other code and other projects and all that kind of stuff. The whole point of this is to think about components in an application's architecture and how can these things fit together in a way to where they're not painful over time to keep building on and expanding and all that kind of stuff. Well, if I could, um, so there's this guy named uh, Joseph Zach that wrote this blog article. And uh, 
there's a quote that he has in here that says the worst code I ever saw was the code I wrote six months ago <laughs> said every coder ever. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So yeah, man, I was I, actually looking at uh, reading through the article. I'm like, I don't really know how to calculate this stuff because some of my code has as a uh, highly unstable <laughs> and my code's pretty dang good. <laughs> so now I know that like all that meant is that there was stuff depending on it and it was concrete. You know, one thing that has that I was a question though about this is that clearly uh, the the guys from Independ and Uncle Bob, as they were you know creating this this chart and doing all this math, like this was apparently a known thing because here's two different sources that did the exact same thing. Yeah, but you know, I never really heard a lot about this outside of things like that, like right? you know independent conversations or this book. Oh man, that link that, that we're sharing that Joe did a while back from the independent, that is the, the chart. That is the exact thing, right? Right. Yeah. You can even see the standard deviations, which I didn't know at the time. I just thought they were like cool, you know, flavors of Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> well, they're that too. Aren't they always? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's and the independent blog actually has a diagram of the independent code and like it's really good too. It's only got a couple which are in the uh, second standard deviation closest to the uh, getting close to the zone of pain. But pretty much right down that main sequence. Cool. Yeah. I mean even um, Scott Hanselman has another article that's similar that, that was talking about the same zone of pain. Um, his graph was much different with a lot more in the zone of pain. So maybe yeah, I just Googled zone of pain of uselessness and I'm like mostly seeing independent articles. Yeah. I mean, did independent invent this? Well, you, you can just search zone of pain graph and you'll find a bunch of, um, you know, if you, if you Hanselman's articles from 10 years ago. Right. And he talks about independent, independent. He does. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, this is stuff that is worthwhile knowing about. Again, going back to all this, like, if you're listening, obviously you care about getting better at what you do. And it's nice to think about these things, not just in terms of your classes, but how these things all fit together in the end. And that's uh, that'll make us all better in the long run. So, with that, uh, we will include, obviously, a link to the Clean Architecture book and the resources we like section. And we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Or month. Or month. Whatever. <laughs> All right. It's your first. You go first. Oh, okay. So, um, I feel like a lot of mine have been on a Microsoft uh, path here lately. And so, keeping with that trend, aischool.microsoft.com. So, you've seen your... Coursera classes, you've seen your plural site courses, uh, you know, Udacity, whatever. So now Microsoft has a AI school with a bunch of modules that you can go and watch, similar to like how you would on a Udacity or a plural site. Uh, there's a bunch of courses out there, and you can learn how to use um, you know, it, it can start basic. With like uh, you know using Python for data science, it can get into uh, you know, explaining deep learning all the way into 
hands-on, like, hey, let's use the cognitive services within Azure to recognize faces or, um, you know, getting started with using the Azure machine learning uh, uh, site, right? So there's some great modules out there. I thought I would share that as a as a link, as a resource. Man, how is how exciting is it nowadays that you can come to something like this? Like just on the first three pieces on this page, this is all free. There is a two hour and fifty minute course on a beginner thing. There is a sixteen hour module for beginners to completely learn artificial intelligence. It's an introduction to artificial. You won't completely learn it. It's just an introduction. Then then learn analytics, a 16 hour and 45 minute. Like we're talking about things that back in the day you spent thousands of dollars. Yeah, man. To even get your hands on it. Like you could get a really awesome uh you know head start computer science type education without ever stepping foot on a campus. Yeah, man. Nowadays there's so many resources out there it's amazing this this kind of stuff is exciting and what that i think what that's going to mean though right right i I think that that's going to like up the expectations right like if you are going to be in those in those schools i that's what i would think it's like because the thing is as something becomes more available right then it's just expected that you have it right like cell phones became more available Right. So it's just expected that you have a cell phone. Yeah. So if you're going to be in a computer science and like, you know, it's just going to be more expected, like, oh, of course you can like find out how to do that because there's so many resources out there to do it. And even if it's not, man, it just having this stuff available, I mean, you could be a step above or a step in front of everybody else if you took the time to, you know, kick back and watch some of these things and, and try them. So that, that's a killer resource. Yeah. And these, these, the, um, Skill levels, they, they go from beginner to intermediate to advanced. So uh, there's a ton of the beginner ones in there, but you know there are some that are in there that are advanced. So have fun with it. Killer. All right. Yeah, and um, you know what's funny is uh, things have never been easier to learn, but there's never been higher expectations. Like I got my first junior dev box. They were like, make this div blue. And <laughs> right. I did. And they're like, oh, you're hired, buddy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, things are different. But then again, think about it this way. Like, that was not easy knowledge to come by. Like I had to piece that together, you know, by buying a book at Barnes Noble and, you know, working through a couple chapters and, and whatever. <laughs> and, so and looking at with source that code same, of other websites that actually had a blue diff. Yeah, that's right. All sorts of cheating. But uh, with that same level of effort, say they call it a couple hours, you know, that used to take me to get that div to be blue. You can spend <laughs> that three hours learning, you know, introduction to machine learning or to AI or whatever. It's crazy, so right? uh, that's pretty amazing. You know, and would you rather spend three hours to make something blue or just <laughs> spend three hours to learn how to uh, detect whether something's a hot dog or not? Now, now here, let's put it into a different context, because like, obviously, we only talk about this as it relates to, uh, you know, things that are in like a computer science, computer engineering kind of world. But I mean. Same is true for anything else. Everything, man. You want to learn something about finance? You want to learn how to be a plumber? Right. Yeah. Go to YouTube. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I yeah. love the. I love. That's a thousand years ago. You're like, okay, I want to be a farmer. Like, all right, day one. Here's a shovel. <laughs> Start digging. We, we've pretty. We've almost gotten to the point where the Matrix is reality, where it's like suddenly, like, I need to know how to fly an Apache helicopter. Z- okay, there it is. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Zap. Zap. It's amazing. <laughs> We're almost there. Watching the video right now. 
All right. So mine is is actually something that my buddy Nicholas uh, that I work with, he shared with us. And it is called quicktype.io. And what it allows you to do is in a number of different languages, paste in some data and it'll create the classes for you. So if you have a JSON blob, you can drop that thing in there and it will create you a C sharp class, a um, probably Python, Java, whatever, uh, drop some XML in, it'll convert it into class type information. So now, um, didn't you give a very similar one that was within visual studio that did the same thing? Yeah. A long time ago, it, it would take, um, XML, I thought it did XML and JSON. And JSON, and it would turn it into C Sharp, but it was kind of ugly. I mean, oh, okay. I left it as a tip, and I tried it a few times, and I wasn't as happy as I thought I'd be. But this one this one this, created good, clean code? This one looks really nice. Yeah, this one creates some some pretty stuff. And you so can pick the out language? The out language. So, like, right now I'm looking at there's a JSON blob, and you can have it convert to C Sharp, Go, C++, Java, TypeScript, Swift, Elm, JSON schema, or simple types. So... Yeah, man, it, it's Very nice. it's it's really good stuff here, and the input types are JSON, multiple, or schema. So, I think I'm pretty sure I saw some XML that that worked with it. So, yeah, really cool stuff, man. Somebody took time to build this little app and uh, free. Go go try it out. I like that. I, I keep finding myself doing more and more stuff on websites rather than using apps or even stuff on IDE. Like even calculator stuff now, I just tend to search it and get the answer from Google rather than like opening up the calculator app. Yeah. Yep. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I, I'm very much like that too. Like back in the day, you know, in Sublime, you would install all your favorite like uh, JSON formatters and XML formatters and things like that. And now it's yep. like, I just go to the web. I, I shared uh, a tip about JSON formatters. Um, uh, a couple of episodes back, I don't remember how many it was, but yeah, I I do that. So now I just go to that website. Yep. You know, I think it was like Curious Formatter or something like that. Um, I, I Google it. I love these but. utilities. Yeah, I mean, it, people people all had, uh, all had what was that? People all had a need or something that was you know that was bothering them, and so they created these utilities. I, I actually thought about something the other day. So our, our buddy Ryan, who, who so they're very stable. They are very stable. A lot of dependencies. <laughs> he he wrote Glyphrend, which has now gotten ridiculous number of downloads. But he created the plugin that allows you to find, you know, icons or 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 images that were from Fawn Awesome and various things within in your IDE. Think about this. Anytime you have to alt tab out of something you're doing to go get something mm-hmm. to to augment something you're doing is probably a good idea for some sort of plugin or some sort of utility. So for anybody that's looking for a little project to do, there's you, there's you something to think about. As if you didn't already have enough things to do. That's right. Right. Machine learning. Yeah. People ask yeah. all the time, like what's a good idea for a small project or learning or something like, Hey, make a calculator plugin, make a calculator website, make a whatever. Yeah. Command line. Little stuff. It doesn't have to be big. Yep. It can still be really useful. Yep. Speaking of useful, uh, my tip is a, a new ha- uh, a new app that I just started using called Habitica. So it's New Year 2018. I'm trying to develop some new habits. So I kind of look for some like gamifying apps that I could use. And uh, if you're watching the video, probably not. Uh, this is a cute little picture. So I've got like a little role-playing game character on here. I made myself look like a wolf, I think. 
And uh, I get um, points for doing little daily tasks that I set up as well as some some bigger to-do uh, to list type things. So today I lost a little bit of health because I uh, had a not a very healthy lunch. <laughs> um, I didn't do cardio. I didn't do 10 minutes of cleaning. I did walk the dogs. I did floss. So, you know, I got some points for that. And so these little things I just kind of check off. And so it's kind of a fun little thing. Whenever you go in to check something off, a lot of times I'll notice like, oh, well, I walked the dogs, but I still haven't washed the dishes today. Let me go ahead and do that. And so it's just kind of gotten this kind of cool little rhythm where it kind of encourages you to kind of think about the little stuff you should do. So it's, I did not schedule the dentist. So it's gamifying the habits or to-do list in your life. Yep. So the, the things so that you want up. to be good habits, you're gamifying it. Have you saved the princess yet? No. Um, actually, there's also a little quest you can do with other people. And so one of the incentives is like, well, I want to level up and get stronger and earn money so I can go buy a sword so that the three of us can go, you know, take out the big, uh, you know, minotaur boss or something. And so I don't think there's any like actual fighting component, but it just the, it encourages you to kind of build that power by doing stuff every day. But this is all kind of stuff. This is all on the uh, honesty scale, right? Like, you, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> you could totally hit a button and said, "Yeah, I've lost." Yeah, I mean, you beat the minotaur. You know, it's not gonna, you know, give you a sandwich or anything. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> there's not a real strong incentive to cheat either, unless you're just trying to kind of um, make it look like you're doing better than you are. Well, isn't that <laughs> but, what uh, Facebook is? I mean, like ninety yeah, percent of people that's on true. Facebook. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> So, yeah, maybe I won't add you guys as friends on here then. Fine. <laughs> um, hey, but, man, I uh, I this one. miles. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Only uh, I ended up going with this one because it looked cute. So, it looked like a cute little video game. It's also open source, which I thought was really cool. So, you can go contribute to it. And it's on Android, iOS, and it's totally free. And you can actually um, – I did um, support the developers. So, I looked like a wolf because I like – you know, I clicked the little option to buy developers a coffee and they give me, you know, some money for skins. So, that's totally optional, though. Cool. Hey, speaking of Android and iOS, didn't you just recently make some sort of life change? Uh, yeah, I switched to I uh, switched to Android because you know headphone jacks, and my I had noticed that my computer had gotten or my uh, iPhone had gotten suspiciously slow after a latest update, and this was before all that stuff came out about uh, the battery. And it may not be related to the battery, but it was like, hey, I updated. Now my life is miserable. So. <laughs> I've still got it here. If anyone wants to buy it, it's got a cock screen. <laughs> How much are you selling it for? Uh, whatever Google says it's worth. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Wait, what did you you want to buy a busted iPhone? You had a six? Uh, yep, six. Yeah, It's not terrible. I haven't had an iPhone in a while. It's another music player device in my house. Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll talk need, offline. Need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think, was that it? Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick summary. We talked about component coupling. Uh, we introduced three new principles, the acyclic dependency principle, stable dependency, dependency principle, stable abstractions principle. And uh, we talked about stability and abstraction and how to graph things, which can be a little confusing. But if you go to the show notes, we've got a couple of examples we can point you to of what this looks like. And you can kind of wrap your head around it. Slash 72. All right. So with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to leave us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. And we forget this every time. If you guys would like some stickers, 
send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to codingblocks.net slash swag. And also while you're up there, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. Yep, and send your feedback, questions, rants, um, I don't know, to the Slack channel or hit us up on Twitter or some other way. If you find us anywhere and just ask us, we can point you to where we'd like for you to go. (laughs) Way to be definitive. Yeah, it's kind of a a raw deal for you, really. (laughs) So anyway, hit us up and we'll tell you what we want from you. Uh, That would be fantastic. Uh, And at CodingBox is a great way to do it. Or you can go to the website and uh, find lots of show notes and stuff social links that is a wrap on a very short show yeah tank of gas or a new computer boom the purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks all this and FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use it's made especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers and their taxes Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our list. Oh, God, I was doing so good. <laughs> it all started with computer. Computer. <laughs> computer. Downhill from there. I turned my computer off once a day. I was like, you know what? I can deal with computer. If I, I just get through it, I can deal with computer. I won't let computer get the best of me. Yep. Ah. We'll do it live. <laughs>